Welcome to the Jill on Money Coronavirus Market Update. It is Sunday, July 19th. And today we are airing the second part of my interview with Teresa Gillarducci, the labor economist and retirement expert. She is a professor at the New School. She does tons of research and she is always so enlightening in terms of how she talks about retirement in general. And I think that in this part of the interview, what's incredibly important to underscore is that the pandemic could leave lasting impact on a generation of people who are looking forward to retirement. And maybe we are thinking about retirement in the wrong ways. And that's part of our exploration in this part of the interview. She also then, of course, turns the tables on me and starts interviewing me in the middle of my interview of her. So here is the rest of our interview with Teresa Gillarducci. How do you think this virus will impact the way we think about retirement. You know, before we went on the air, you and I were talking a little bit about, you know, how do you conceive retirement? There's so much pressure on people and so much anxiety. So um, I don't want to steal your thunder from your future book, but can we talk a little bit about how we think emotionally about retirement in light of what we've just gone through or what we are still going through, I should say? Uh, Jill, this is the project I'm most excited about in my life right now. Retirement has gotten a bad press in America. The conversation we're having would be laughable in most of the other world, where retirement is seen as an important part of human development. A period of time where, as an adult, you can control the pace and content of your time is the period of time in as adult where you can find out who you are as a person. When you're working, that luxury of knowing how you want to spend your time is not affordable for most of us. We have to pay attention to the needs of our employer or to our clients, you know, or to the needs of the enterprise. And who we are as a human being is subordinated. That's just the life of a person in a market economy. But the fact that the rich, the middle class, and the poor alike have fought for Social Security, for pensions, you know, for Medicare, is evidence of a basic human drive to have the reward at the end of your life to be able to figure out what your personhood is. So I think the virus certainly has brought mortality and morbidity to the forefront of all of our lives and gave us the sense that we should think about how we want to spend the rest of our lives And people who are being pushed out of work have that question, it's very stressful, put in front of them. So I think it's important for Americans to realize that we have to stop the madness of being distinguished among the rich world as working more hours per day, more days per week, more weeks per year and more years per lifetime than our colleagues in other rich countries. We have exceeded Japan and Germany as working the most. So if the virus makes Americans take stock of that relationship and demand a healthy retirement time, it would be good progress for human development. So I don't mean to sound so lofty, but I'm getting a lot of my data and evidence for this view from psychologists, gerontologists, um, philosophers, and anthropologists. 
I mean, when you when you publish this book, you must come back. I find it fascinating. You know, of course, I'm no longer in practice, but you know, as a CFP, when I was giving financial advice for 14 years, people would come in and say, "I want to retire. I want to retire. I want to retire." They retire, and then they're not happy. And um, and certainly on the radio show and on the podcast, we hear from people who are targeting retirement, targeting retirement. You know, no one's ever taught us how to retire before. So thinking about it and emotionally understanding that this is a whole new phase of your life is just fascinating to me. And it's a phase that can last for a long time. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Um, in your life as an interviewer and when you um, worked counseling people, how did they approach retirement with glee and confidence or was fear a, a big factor? Well, I would say it was both. I mean, there were sort of three generalized emotions that would come through. One was excitement. Like, oh my God, this is so amazing. Like we can, you know, we would maybe deliver a financial plan that says, yes, you know, Teresa, you can retire at age 66 and six months, just as you have planned. And so that would be like, wow, I've hit a milestone. So there's an excitement about it. There were plenty of people who had great fear. What is this going to mean? Oh my God, I'm going to be home with my spouse all this time. Or I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. And this is really anxiety provoking, right? And I think for there's there were certainly also a lot of couples where retirement mm. meant different things. Like we could always be on the same page when we were both working, putting our heads down, getting the family educated, raising our kids, moving, right? The idea that one had a very different view than the other. Oh, fascinating. So you had to reshape your own individual like teenagers do, right? Absolutely. You know, that kind of fear and anxiety sounds like an, actually an adolescent rite of passage. Yeah. Who am I? What am I to do? But adolescents don't go into adulthood you know, as a couple. So that if the couple is an entity, they have to figure out that identity as well. That's fascinating. I don't. I don't think the psychology profession has caught up with this. Mm. Um, this this very important life event. We've got grief, right? We got grief on, down pat. You know, lots of literature and an industry around grief, but around transitions on identity, um, we don't have. And in America, we add financial fear on top of this really put older people behind the eight ball. And then there's also the fear of actually financial predation. You're going into a period of life where it's really important for you to handle your finances right when your ability to handle your finances may actually be on the decline. Mm. Another question to you. I've yeah, seen- I love being interviewed. This is fabulous. I don't to, Mark, this is great. I don't have to do a thing. I Oh, think about this. I've seen surveys from financial planners who say, I know that many of my clients do not understand what I'm saying. Oh. Um, I'm pretending that they understand that they're getting good advice. What do you say about that? I think they're lousy advisors if that's the case. Well, they're saying it's because of cognitive decline among their clients. I think that's, um, how can I say this nicely? I think that <laughs> that can be the case, but I think that's a vast overstatement. Okay. Um, I think that that may be true if you have an 85-year-old couple. I, I think that is rarely true in my experience if you have a 55- and 65-year-old couple. I yes. think that there are emotional barriers 
that people mm-hmm. put up. And I think that that is something that is really mm. tough for many advisors to deal with because it does require you to be a little bit more of a shrink. So in my yeah. experience, when I have had people who put those barriers up, I would stop the meeting. I would say, it doesn't seem like you guys are ready for this right now. And you know, let's talk about that. Or I might say, you know what I think would make sense right now? I think we need to bring in one of your kids to help here because we need to bring in another part of the family because so much of retirement planning and financial planning in general has become intergenerational, not intra, that we've got to bring other people in. But look, if you think you have a client who's in cognitive decline, who doesn't understand the messaging, you got a lot of things that you got. You got a lot of bells to ring right there, right? You really do. I think that what's fascinating about the idea of retirement is that it conjures up different things to different generations, right? And so I was very taken with this movement, the FIRE movement, financial independence, retire early. These young kids who are saving, saving, saving. And, you know, I could get into the financial independence part like whole hog. I love the idea of, you know, basically saving a bunch of money so you have opportunity in the future. But when they would talk about retire early and it's 30, 40 years old, I I just, I don't know, I giggled. I felt like, you know, okay, boomer, you know, because I said to myself, well, what are you going to do with yourself? You're going to travel around the world and then what? But I think for a lot of other people, having colleagues, having a a mission, having some, Mm. some goals, I think that that is an essential aspect of who many of these people are, which is why they find retirement really difficult. I I really want to add something very completely different perspective on this, um, Jill. I view the FIRE movement and also the view to be financially independent as actually a worker power movement. Mm. If you're financially independent, then you can say to your boss, change this, change my hours, don't make me work on weekends. Don't think because I have an email or a text that you can call me all the time. You know, make my job more reasonable. Pay me more. It's the take take this job and shove it a desire for wealth and independence. Mm-hmm. I feel these young people are saying what you're doing to me on the at the workplace is too much. I can't imagine raising my family, being who I want to be with these kinds of work demands because It goes back to the data that I told you about at the beginning, that Americans are working more hours per week, more weeks per year, more years per lifetime, and that young people want more of a balance, and they're not getting it from their employers. So if you're financially independent, you can have the ability to say, take this job and shove it. I view the wealth independence movement as not to absent themselves from work, but a desperate effort to try to make the workplace much more balanced. I see this with older people too. Older people had good pensions and a good a good retirement plan. They may actually like their jobs better. The jobs that they do get um, may actually pay a little bit more. Um, we are fi- I'm just finding a lot of older people are taking pretty bad jobs just because they don't have good retirement security. I actually think wealth accumulation, retirement security would make all workers better off because it would actually require employers to provide a more healthy and better paid and better balanced um, job. Do you think that this whole work from home 
part of our lives that's going on now, which is likely to extend into the future for the foreseeable future for many of the white collar workers out there who are listening to this. Is that bad news for workers' rights? Because on one level, I say, it's great. You don't have to commute. You know, maybe there's more work from home stuff, but then you're always available. Like my girlfriend and I, man, we starting at six o'clock in the morning and there is email checking going on till 930 at night. So that doesn't seem very healthy either. Do you have more balance because you're working at home? I don't. I never, I'm no. I'm out of balance. I I need a, an adjustment. I need a um. I need an employment and um lifestyle adjustment from some chiropractor out there. Um, I think that workers who are working at home have one common thing they say is good about it. I save on the commute, mm-hmm. but then the list of benefits from working at home stop there. I have some employees that they're. Their graduate students or researchers, they're liking the one or two days where they can kind of be left alone to write. Um, but that's a very rare job. I think employers are realizing that workers working at home, on balance, are less productive. Um, there are very few people who are working at home who are more productive than they were. It was a good stopgap. There may be a lot of workplaces that will allow people to save from their commute maybe one or two days a week that that might change permanently for some workers but us coming together person to person at the workplace i don't think will go away but it's a big open question among labor economists we're talking about it all the time and we're diving into 765 occupations just to see what kind of shift there may be but we don't think it'll be a wholesale um shift away from the office Wow, this is going to be really interesting. Okay, I have to let you go. You've been so generous with your time. Teresa Ghilarducci, I always like to say with a little Italian flair, even if you don't. Um, I cannot thank you enough. Please come back when you have anything you want to say, and certainly when we have that book to discuss. It's really interesting, and I'm so so grateful for, for your time. Please stay safe, and thank you for doing all the good work that you do. Thank you, Jill. It's always good to talk to you. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks to Teresa Ghilarducci for enlightening us. She's fantastic. We'll put a link in the show notes to Teresa's own website. And uh, just remember that, you know, all these issues around retirement, they're so important. There are policy issues involved. There's personal issues involved. If you have a question about your retirement, just send an email, askjill at jillonmoney.com. Ask Jill at jillonmoney.com. I like to do this every week or so. Don't forget, our music is composed by the fantastic Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is our executive producer. We are distributed by Cadence 13. Please, as you go out and enjoy your Sunday, wash your hands, wear your masks, maintain that physical distancing, and do something nice for somebody today. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.